been 10 months since the Timeless Children Doctor Who Series 12 finale, and so we come to the second festive New Year's Day special of Chibnall's era, Revolution of the Daleks. As promoted in advance, it's a big story. There are loads of Daleks, the Doctor is in prison, Captain Jack makes a proper return, Chris Noth's Robertson character returns, Graham and Ryan depart the show. A new companion is announced, it's the first story to have its initial release in 4K with HDR and it's 71 minutes long, so it is literally bigger than most episodes. A big episode. And our only episode tiding us over until whenever series 13 is ready. So there is lots to talk about, and five people here to talk about it. 2020's timeliness, Dalek police equivocation, yes, characterization? The oddity of a Russell T Davies era character jutting into this era. Ignoble deaths of characters, big speeches, Dalek purity, pets and parallels, beanies, passivities, Harry Potter, all sorts of scripting and editing oddities, yes, there is a lot here, and discussing it all will be myself, Neo from Australia, Ingiga from England, Tomtit from Australia, Astra from Scotland, and Missy from New Zealand. So, so much of this episode's big moves were spoiled in advance to the press that I say, let's just jump ahead into spoiler territory right away, and I'd like to first ask everyone, what you liked about the episode, what worked best for you, before then asking everyone what the biggest failures of the episode were to you. Missy, do you want to start us off and say anything you liked about Revolution of the Daleks? Sure, yeah, okay. I liked quite a few things about it. I would like to say that, first of all, I liked just about everything that didn't feature 13 or the fam or Jack, which doesn't Mm. bode well for a Doctor Who episode, unfortunately. Mm. I liked the cold open. I liked can't think of anything else the interior of the dalek ship yes i liked parts of i like this is a thing in most terminal stories where i find that i like small bits of quite a few things devoid of context but then as a whole it 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 all falls apart so there are quite a few tiny little things i like but overall not a lot yeah yeah that's fair astra did you like anything about this story um I like that I didn't feel like turning it off at any point, which is hmm. uh, a win in itself. But um, other than that, I thought, even though I should hate him, I thought Robertson was hilarious. Yes, um, yes. He was. He was un- unfortunately he was the highlight of the episode, which is a shame because he is he's a dislikable person. But um, no, he was he was he was funny. Um, I also liked the Dalek ship interior. I was a bit surprised when I initially saw it, but I was like, mm, I like this, I can get al- along with this. Um, what else did I like? I liked when Jack and the Doctor hugged. It was like the only yes. moment I felt that there was any sort of, that I felt any vague semblance of emotion. <laughs> um, mm. I liked the, <laughs> the Mighty Pudding. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a justification for that. I just think it's good. Um, yes. I liked... One moment that I thought stood out um, was Yaz shoving the doctor because for the first time, the fam in this era didn't seem like mindless yes men. Yeah. So, um, and that's something that I feel has been very, very missing in Chibnall Who, which is the companions don't seem to have any negative emotions when it comes to the doctor. So, um, or at least not overtly. So to to have that sort of scene in there was uh, was good. It's a bit, a uh, little bit too late, I think, but, but I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I agree. I, unfortunately, I think I had more complaints about it though than I did 
things I liked, but you know. That's still a good list. That's still a good list. Tom, what did you like? I would echo Missy's sentiments that there are a few few things that you can sort of take out of context from the episode and I can look at them um, divorced from the rest of everything and I can say I liked that. I liked some of the images in it. Um, the, the the fake riot, so many problems with it, but I mean, just seeing that on screen, <laughs> it does have a certain power to it. It is pretty arresting. Um, I liked, I actually liked the defense drone dialect design. Um, I think it looks better in motion than it does in photos. I didn't really like the new dialect ship interior that much, but I mean, I didn't feel that strongly about it either way. So I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an anti or anything. Um, I liked the big effects shot of the dialects all flying around the TARDIS at the end. Um, and I actually liked the controversial uh, resolution to the Dalek threat involving the spare TARDIS. Um, I thought that was good by this era's standards, uh, which is the thing. You kind of have to take this era by, you know, by its own precedence of, of what it's going to achieve. And um, I thought that was all right uh, as far as a chip era script goes. Um, and I think that's about it. I really enjoyed some of the directorial touches from Lee Haven Jones, but um, yeah, yeah. probably not in the way that he intended me to. Uh, but yeah, that would about cap off my list. So we have a Dalek ship ante and a killing TARDIS stan on the record here. <laughs> yes, I, I, I cop to that. Gig, did you like anything? Um, well, I was quite gratified to see the Prime Minister be brutally murdered. I felt <laughs> that as a counterbalance to Robertson getting off scot-free, it was nice to at least see one of the corrupt bastards in the story get murdered. And separately from that, maybe expanding on something that's already been said here, I liked how generally in the story Yaz was really miserable. I liked how Yaz kept making these little comments to the Doctor about how, oh, you're going to leave me eventually. Oh, and I liked how I liked how generally depressed Yaz was about everything because it just it felt like such a break from tradition and even just having any sense of conflict in the show changes it subtly i liked how that initial scene when um graham and graham and ryan came in to talk to yaz and they were telling her to you know give up on this ridiculous search for the doctor and yaz was like why why how can you say that and the, the, the fact that we're actually seeing yaz be a little bit delusional and a little bit desperate it felt like we were going back into that time when we could have characters and companions behave in ways that are not entirely rational and in ways that are that show their tragic flaws shall we say basically a bit like clara obviously not remotely on that level <laughs> but it was a nice reminder of when the show was capable of being character driven yeah and that's about it for sure uh well i liked some of these you guys already said well i didn't just like i loved chris noth's robertson his his comic timing and his campiness i thought they brought so much energy and joy to the story the thing is he felt excited and he felt happy to be in doctor who in a way that the others are not even really barrowman felt like that to me i liked how overtly dastardly and cartoonish he was i loved how the daleks even had a little like exchange of what the hell with their eye stalks swinging around to look at each other when he sold out humanity so readily i loved how he got away with everything so easily at the end I just found his performance and the character was so cartoonish and fun and camp in a way I don't get from this era usually. And and kind of sliding off what Astro and Gig said, there were moments of humanity in the companions, like Yaz shoving the Doctor in Genuine Actor, a Ryan cynicism that boiled to the brink a few times in a way it's not always let to in the show, some of the Jack moments as well, his conversation with Yaz perhaps, like there were severe problems in the follow-up to all these things, but it wasn't 
completely vacuous the way that sometimes these characters you know suffer under and even as constrained and toothless as he was here jack is a nice presence i like knitting together eras of the show i like that character even in a muted affair like this i thought there was some small magic in having captain jack around and i had issues with some of the direction but i thought the good comic performance from robertson tozen cole allowed to be so seething and some memorable visuals, like uh, we've brought up the pulse sequence of the fake TARDIS and Dalek confrontation at the end, I thought they were quite memorable. And I like the idea of lighting slowly changing being like a plot thing that, you know, candy viewers could pick up on. I thought that was pretty cool. So now that's covered. Who wants to start? Tom, what was the biggest single failure of Revolution of the Daleks to you? Um, just one, I think. The sheer length of it is hard to look past. Um, I think that this is an episode that could have been done in maybe 25 minutes, but it's a whopping 71-minute uh, juggernaut. Um, that would probably be my number one, uh, if I'm only allowed to say one. Yeah, that's fair. Missy, biggest failure, in your opinion? How none of the either emotional or purely plot narrative points came to a satisfying head. I guess this is similar to what uh, Tom had just said, because it, it is such a long story, and so there is an inherent investment that we all had to put in to watch this piece of television. And for everything to end the way it did, I'm talking about uh, Robertson getting away scot-free, uh, the underwhelming exit of Graham and Ryan. Mm. Um, the Dalek ending was quite satisfying but had its own problems with it all, all of these big things that oh the doctor escaping the prison is a big one all yeah. of these things that we, we we had to go through and none of them were very satisfying i think i think it just failed at being a satisfying piece of television that's brutal but yeah <laughs> it's a, it's but a like point. in a nice way <laughs> yeah <laughs> astra if you had to choose one thing what failed for you the most um, well, Messi already touched upon it, but it's the idea for me that the companion departure, I felt nothing. But hmm. the problem with that is that I can't blame this episode for it specifically because it is wrapped up in, in issues I have with the whole era. And it's mainly that I was never given the opportunity to care about the characters in the first place. So um, seeing them go is just kind of like... Well, okay, bye then. Um, and the doctor getting so emotional about it. I again, I I have never been convinced of her care for the companions. Um, and it's not that I didn't want to be convinced. I tried very hard to be convinced. I just never really felt it. So her getting so upset and um, the line where she's like, "Oh, I could, I could, you know." travel back in time before I met you and you know so before I came back and fixed the timeline and it's just like did you really care for them that much because I never really got the the, the feeling um and then the whole idea of Ryan and Graham's story I mean first of all I felt bad for Graham because I don't I didn't get the feeling he wanted to go but um Ryan Graham's story culminating in this like just echoing the where they started um but it's like such a it's like a primary school level of you know cyclical writing you know bring it all back to where you began but but there was nothing gained like I don't feel at any point that Ryan and Graham were truly changed by it except for the fact that maybe well Ryan is more positive about Graham in general compared to where he started um but but it was like 
I don't know. It, it just it just felt empty to me, and that made me sad. <laughs> Am I understanding you right that when Graham says we do get aliens in Sheffield, this didn't arise any emotions <laughs> in you? <laughs> that was like the cheesiest line I have ever heard. I don't know what the goal was with that. I think it was. Um, I think that suffers from the fact that their their introduction kind of um, failed in some ways for me as well. So having their ending echo their introduction just um i it just didn't didn't work didn't work i think it's tied into this idea of like mirroring is good you know in stories like if something at the end references something at the start we've done a circle it's all very satisfying and neat and it can be but the issue is that line of graham's it's not really tied into anything like graham isn't xenophobic so (laughs) oh we don't get aliens here like, this he isn't a resolution aliens. of a character arc of, oh, I accept we get aliens here and that's great. It's just, I said this thing once, now I'm saying the other thing. It's yeah. not really baked into anything. Yeah, the point of mirroring in a story is not just to reference where you began for the sake of it. It is to contrast where you began. It is to show, look how much these characters have changed. And at no point during Ryan and Graham's exit did I feel, oh my God, look how far they've come. You know, the, the ending, I suppose... Like I said, you could say, argue that, okay, Ryan feels a bit more positive about, positive about Graham, but even then I didn't get that feeling. And then Graham's line about aliens in Sheffield, well, you know, what was the point of it? You know, I, I don't feel that they were changed significantly enough that, that their exit felt satisfying because it ties into this idea in, during Chapter Zero that the companions didn't really get character arcs, at least not ones that, ones that were worth emotionally investing in. So... Having them just suddenly go, well, we're we're leaving now. Um, it's like, were they emotionally fulfilled by anything? Do they feel that this that they are ready to go? Graham didn't. Um, they just decided. You know, it felt like Chibnall or someone along the way just decided, okay, we're sick of Ryan and Graham now. Let's just get rid of them. You know, just shove them aside. We can't well, be bothered anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't always mind Ryan. I like having this very. He reminds me of Tegan a bit, and that he's not really happy to be there. And I think that <laughs> it's not necessarily a pleasant voice to have on yeah. the show, but it's an interesting. Well, theoretically, it's an interesting idea. Uh, but Gig, can I ask? What was your big failure of Revolution of the Daleks to you? Um, I do have one that I want to say, but just before we move on to that, I just want to add one more thing to that Ryan uh, development thing. Is I felt the editing really stressed the lack of progression with Ryan because the very <laughs> final shot of the entire episode and the moment they chose to cut it was just as Ryan hit the floor after falling <laughs> off his bike yet again. And on the rewatch, I swear to God, the way that the end credit stinger music comes in just as he hits the ground, it is so funny. It is so unintentionally funny. I couldn't believe Leave it. It was just like the whole era of his tenure on the show was just a giant Shaggy's dog story leading up to that bitter punchline. Oh my god, I couldn't take it. I didn't get these. I don't want to cut off your big negative. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get the same reaction to the final shot, although I see what you mean about the music synchronization. But I thought I was kind of relieved that he fell. That sounds awful. I was kind of relieved that he <laughs> fell because. I think his dyspraxia in the show has sometimes been treated too much as something he can just get over in certain situations. And I didn't want his character arc to be, you know, I grew as a person, therefore my, you know, ailment is gone. I thought that would have been a really sick message to send. Yeah. So I was relieved that he kept failing and his, you know, granddad was there to support him. But I know what you mean about the visual of it being kind of a naughty thing to end his story on. 
yeah, I completely got why they showed him falling off, but just the timing of it, like the, 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 the correct moment to cut would have been to show him getting up and trying again, persevering, yeah. you know, yeah. personal growth, not to just that utter slapstick of him just face planting. It was just sad. I, I think they could have ended it like, um, like Inception. They could have ended it on a wobble. Ooh. And then it would have been like, oh, is he gonna? <laughs> Who knows? I, I will say that the, uh, just just as a point, um, I suppose that uh, that was Ryan's character arc, and I suppose that is the the silver lining for Ryan is the fact that he did begin um, sort of failing and giving up, whereas he ends up where like okay feels but he's still willing to try and i think that's nice that is you know yes as much as the whole departure felt a bit empty to me um like i said it was it was more of a, an issue of the entire era than specifically what happened in the episode because i did like that they chose that in the end that it wasn't that his travels with the doctor magically cured him or whatever and he can suddenly ride a bike um i just like the idea that for for his character it was like the thing that he learned from the doctor is you don't give up, even if it's tough and you're failing, you can still try, you know. So I thought that was good. Right. I, I, I have my big uh, failure thing, I suppose. Um, and it's kind of a cumulative one. But basically, if we momentarily adopt the perspective of one of those people who's always saying like, oh, well, this will finally be the moment that Chibnall proves that he can do it. Chibnall's finally going to start writing real Doctor Who. The error is finally going to become good. It's going to happen. Here we go. This is going to be the episode. This story, going into it, all the pieces were set. Right, We had the return of Jack Harkness, we had an interesting hook with the fam separated from the Doctor having to try and do stuff on their own, and maybe Jack taking the lead there being a Doctor surrogate. We had an interesting politically charged concept with these police Daleks. Everything was in place for an episode that you know, ought to have been that episode where Chibnall finally proved himself or whatever. And utterly, what we got instead was an episode that proved without a doubt that Chibnall will not grow. Chibnall will not learn. His writing has reached a point of stagnation and stasis. He is still throwing in the same old bag of cliches and tricks. We're still getting random guys who we find out about their sick mum and then they just die mm. randomly to mm -hmm. make you feel yeah. sad. We're still getting this, these empty, inept, shambolic stories with nothing to say and just finding weird avenues like the fake riot to kind of put any potential political commentary in a little box nice and safely contained where it can't say anything. We're still getting this just pathetic same crap show that we've been getting for two bloody years and I think the biggest failure of this episode is that it failed to demonstrate that the show is capable of going anywhere and in that sense this story feels like almost a last straw, like a final straw. I think I think certainly, even if The Timeless Children might have been some terrible episode, it was still at least some attempt at, I don't know, being different or weird. Whereas what we have now is just a show demonstrating that this is the baseline. This is where we're going to be stuck forever. It's never getting better. It's never going anywhere. It's just, it's dead. You know, we get Jack Harkness in an episode and it, it, he's reading out wiki entries. It's just... It's, it's it. Like, we've reached the telos of Chibnall Who. It's, I cannot seeing it ever meaningfully improving or changing from here. Like, this just encapsulates everything that's just dead and desiccated about it in one 71 minute long turgid turd. Um, if I could offer, like, just a little number two to my worst things, because I feel slightly <laughs> bad about my laziness in saying that the worst thing was that there's too much of it. Um, my number two is that um, this was, like, one of the most derivative episodes of Doctor Who I've ever seen. 
And in series 12, we've already seen, you know, the, the material elements, the characters, the monsters start rolling back. But in this one, I think that every emotional beat was um, this the most well-trodden emotional terrain of the show that you can imagine. Like, we get rehashes of um, the Doctor coming back late to Amy Pond. We get the Doctor defining herself in, uh, against the Daleks, just like into the Dalek, and um, countless instances like that, which for someone who's been watching for a while, it's just, there's nothing to grab onto. Um, that was one of the things that frustrated me most about the special. See, what's interesting there, it's just, um, Tom, you see, you say there's nothing to grab onto for people who've been watching for a long time. And, and I agree. But for some people who've been watching for a long time, that derivativeness and familiarity is somehow a selling point. Whereas for us, maybe it's something that means it's boring and that we're not interested. I think some viewers seem to really latch on to those callbacks and just, and if you try and criticize this episode for rehashing stuff, well, they'll just say, Oh, well, it was fine when RTD and Moffat did it. So why don't you like it now? Hmm? Yeah, it's just so much like a, a band that's so much past its prime and they're just playing the hits over and over again. Like we see the new cast's version of, you know, companion leaving angst and getting angry at the doctor and it just feels so mechanical and yeah. Yeah, the problem when you when you retread old ground is that now you have an easy point of comparison. So when you're looking at how the Chibnall era tackles certain things, you can go back and look at how RTD or Moffat tackled it and um, it just makes the flaws of Chibnall's, you know, iteration so much more apparent. My, the most salient failure of the episode to me is tied into that point of how R. Russell T. Davies tackled things. It's a, it's a little minor note to the end. You, you know how we don't really get a Captain Jack goodbye? Perhaps they didn't film one. It's like a 80-yard voiceover scene of Jack. We don't even see his hologram in the TARDIS. He's just like calling the Doctor saying... Uh, you know, I caught up with, I'm going to catch up with Gwen Cooper from Torchwood, blah, 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 this stuff about Gwen. It's not that that scene itself is a voiceover or anything like that. It's that he brings up Gwen Cooper. That's great. I love Gwen. I love Torchwood. It was exciting to get Torchwood and Gwen referenced. Uh, but then he says this curious little line and he says, um, Gwen says she took out a Dalek with a moped and her son's boxing gloves. <laughs> now... Gwen and Reese have a daughter named Anwen. We see in the last episode of Children of Earth, which Chibnall didn't work on, she's pregnant. And then in Miracle Day, which Chibnall is on the record as disliking, uh, we see the daughter. We see Anwen, uh, who lives with him initially in Wales. Uh, and, you know, the audio adventures that have continued Gwen and Reese's stories, you know, Anwen is mentioned in them and everything. Like, it's okay to give characters more children like i'm not saying this is like a some terrible sin but it's a bit weird isn't it like gwen already has a daughter you could very easily say and with her daughter's whatever it could even be her daughter's boxing gloves there's something about just chucking another child at gwen and reese uh that really grated against me can anyone express why this annoyed me or perhaps annoyed them so much um this this line it was a little oh, like throwaway reference that was just meant to, you know, please the Torchwood fans, but it it, it annoyed me. Um, okay, so so there there is sort of the more I was thinking about it, despite the fact it's such a brief little thing, I was like, okay, there is potentially an explanation for why you know what originally was a daughter to Gwen is now referred to as a son. You know, that's yeah. but I don't think Chibnall was meaning that. 
at all. So, so, so I can't. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to go into there because I don't. I don't believe that that Chibnall meant that as much as it would have been. You know, a good thing. Um. So, so the thing is about that. It it, it comes across to me as like he he was just ignoring uh Miracle If she's had another child since, if that was the implication, then it'd be way too young for to have boxing gloves. So I just don't understand what the what the timeline is here or what Chibnall was in was insinuating and um did he make a mistake and he just didn't bother to check, you know, check up on that one. I was also disappointed, um I won't go into it because it's spoilers for for uh, we're Big Finish takes Torchwood, so I'm not gonna yeah, I'm not yeah. gonna mention it. But I will say that for various reasons, I was also disappointed um, about this line for reasons of Gwen's yeah. characterization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it feels so silly to be so caught up in you know, which was just a brief throwaway. But it's just one of those things. It's like I don't know. It just feels like Chevnall just didn't care to be aware of what he was writing in a sense. Um, and and I know that, for example, if I don't know if I feel silly. Sometimes people go, "Well, the big finish Torchwood isn't relevant." Maybe it's not, but RTD was involved in it, and he was directly involved with what happened to Gwen. So I don't know. It just feels weird, and I wasn't happy with that line at all. And which is ironic because Gwen is probably one of my most favourite characters ever. So you'd think I'd be happy to know that she's she's out there in some capacity. But yeah. no, it was. Uh... I think what we all deeply understand is that that is not Chibnall's story to tell. It just yeah. isn't what happened to Gwen. It's just not something that he, from his era of Doctor Who, ought to be reaching his grubby little fingers around into back into Torchwood and trying to fuck around with characters that we love and like and that we have been following. It's just, it, it feels deeply inappropriate, you know? And it's a bit like, it's like a worse version of what RTD likes to do like in his lockdown minisodes <laughs> and in his Sarah Jane yeah. episodes. When wait, we'll hear about some classic who companion like okay tegan and nissa are now a couple ian and barbara are now immortal it's it's a bit <laughs> weird when he does that stuff but at least it wasn't in the main doctor who show he was doing it you know chib is now doing it from doctor who itself and it's like it's it's just it's unnecessary it's like it's supposed to be fan service but it's like fan irritation and it's just it, it, it sucks yeah yeah um, the bit that grated with me in that sequence was the doctor sort of chipperly saying, oh, say hi to Gwen for me. Um, cause I always thought that Gwen sort of resented the doctor, like after that children in that speech. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. I think yeah. that's kind of more of just an, that's just an occupational hazard of putting, uh, Torchwood in a reference in current Doctor Who, because it's that awkward tension between those two shows and how they can't ever fully address each other. But, um, cause you don't expect the doctor to like say, yeah, oh, Gwen has issues with me. Cause she wouldn't even know, but yeah, it did. It did, um, jar with me. Oh, well, actually that makes me curious where in Jack's timeline this takes place. Um, because I've been wondering, yeah, because if this is a really, it can't, I, I don't, I don't imagine it'd be a really far along Jack because I don't feel like a Jack who's significantly older, you know, I don't know. I just, I just don't feel like none of it makes sense to me in my head, and and certainly as as a big Torchwood fan, I'm trying to sort of fit this in. And at that point, Jack is a bit too. If we're assuming this takes place after you know everything that happened with uh, yeah, Children of Earth yeah. and Miracle Day, Jack is a bit too chipper, you know. Um, and I'm not. I wasn't expecting there to be any sort of you know reference to what happened in Torchwood. Um, Maybe Mr. Colchester's husband gave him a new lease on life. And he was all peppy and happy. <laughs> no, no, oh my god. Um, but no, um, 
that's that's the thing. Like I would, my ideal Jack is a is um his characterization in Torchwood, where he isn't just comic relief in a sense. And we got a uh, we got glimpses of that when he was like, for example, talking to Yaz. But but I'm also one of these people who kind of prefers Jack when he's moved on from the Doctor a little bit. So I was like, as much as I liked that discussion he had with Yaz, it yeah, it, it leaned. It leaned in a bit too much to the whole idea that Jack is still pining for the Doctor. No, and it's not that I have an issue with that. It's just that my favourite Jack characterisation has always came from when he is himself and not just, you know, chasing after this this impossible figure that he's lost. Um, So, I I don't know. What really fascinated me in the Captain Jack and Yaz heart-to-heart is this was... I think an uncharacteristic way to bring a fan favorite character back in that this character was brought back in service of the current characters. He wasn't brought back to steal the show. He didn't steal the show. He didn't take the doctor role and dominate everyone as we feared. He was just there quite subservient, quite in the background, just there to help. And the fan thing was just there to kind of reflect on Yaz's current character arc. That really surprised me. That's a pretty delicate way to handle continuity elements. So I was kind of taken aback after the maybe less delicate way Chibnall handled continuity in The Timeless Children and other things. Uh, But the problem with all of that is, while that's admirable in its own way, it doesn't make watching a kind of muted Jack not really do much exciting. And that's not really what Jack's fun for. Yeah. So... Yeah, it, it's that sort of double-edged sword where it worked really well for Yaz, um, and um, it benefited her character. You know, thankfully we got a bit more of that in that, this episode, but it benefited her character. But then it it just meant that Jack, who was advertised as a big selling point for this episode as well, he didn't really have much to do, or he wasn't very um focused on, and. It's so so in a way I like that he was a bit muted, but on, on the other hand, it, it being yeah. Jack, it just felt a bit odd because Jack's whole thing kind of is he is you know he's bombastic and he kind of steals yeah. the show and all this stuff. Um, so having him in that role was strange. I can't currently think of anyone that they could have had instead of him. Um, I'm blanking on it right now, hmm. but but certainly having that. Jack just felt strange. He didn't even die. Jack didn't, <laughs> didn't even die. die. He didn't do the one thing <laughs> that okay. everyone he was for doing. I don't know. Can I tell you that line baffled me so much because I, before I'd seen the episode, I'd saw people reference it and talking about it. I was like, surely they cannot do this. Surely they can't just have Jack randomly announce that he's immortal and then not die because they reference it twice throughout the episode. He explains that he can't die, you know, um, and then later on he just has this like declaration as I'm Captain Jack and I'm immortal, right? So that's that's fine. But what I was expecting, how Chibnall could have fixed this, and and maybe it's a very very obvious way to fix it, but you know it doesn't have to be anything more complicated than this. So they set up the bombs on the Dalek ship to to inject some sense of urgency and maybe even for fans who are maybe not fully aware of Jack and his whole storyline because there's always a general audience who doesn't remember this stuff or never even saw it. To inject some sense of urgency, have it be one of them has to stay behind to detonate the bombs. And 
maybe for some reason he he doesn't have the opportunity to explain to Graham and Ryan, you know, his whole deal, or or maybe they've forgotten it in the moment because actually he already explained it, but maybe they've forgotten it in the moment. Okay, whatever, something like that. I don't know. There's some sense of panic, like oh no, Jack has to stay behind, sacrifice himself. It would have made that payoff of, you know, it would have given that line some payoff where he's like, you know, he's uh, Graham and Ryan have teleported away. And then Jack's standing there and it's like, oh no, he's about to get killed and, you know, he has to, you know, and then he gives the line, I'm Captain Jack and I'm immortal and then blows up. So he gets blown up as well, but it's fine yeah. because he's immortal, you know. So that could have fixed it. You just add add in this little bit where the Jack had to stay behind. Um, I'm not saying it would be the most inventive or creative way yeah. of handling things, but it, but it would have justified that line existing because as it is I... right now, he just randomly announces he's immortal and then leaves. Yeah. I'm not the first to make this observation, but him announcing he's immortal before leaving without dying, it's like if before the Doctor exited a scene, she just proudly announced, I'm the Doctor, and I can regenerate, and then just <laughs> left. I think she should just exit every single scene like that for no reason at all. That would be genuinely hilarious. You know what, sorry, you know what it reminds me of is, um, do you remember, um, in Moffat stories where characters would introduce themselves with a little checklist, like... Uh, I'm Kate Lethbridge Stewart, and I'm an amazing bridge player, or whatever. And they like <laughs> note down all these things. That's what it felt like, but it was yeah. so weird because yeah. it was it was happening at, like as he was leaving. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, by the way, guys. So <laughs> not that it, it I- wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a funny quip. It was just. I'm just going to state a fundamental fact about myself, you know? Um, and then leave. Jack's found his new vocation as a TARDIS wiki contributor like he's announcing rose's status to everyone he's announcing his own premise to everyone he just wants to fill everyone in on the status of the show that, that's what you keep an immortal around for he just knows all these facts and information about everyone he's just there to spout it off to people oh, was- what if it was actually the torchwood archive pretending to be jack <laughs> okay B- bf audio nerd there never mind <laughs> uh something something we got to talk about an even bigger show stealer than jack are the blue, well, the red, well, the police, the new, the revolutionary Daleks, the new Daleks. Yes. Because uh, there's a lot to talk about there, especially with the riot sequence. Uh, to start off, I just want to observe a bit of confusion. Perhaps I lacked comprehension of the episode. But when these new revolutionary Daleks are introduced, we get our character Leo listing off their features. They've got nerve gas. They've got a sonic deterrent. They've got a water cannon. Cool. All those things exist. Those things don't need to be reverse engineered from anything. We can already put those on a drone or a robot or whatever. Uh, I don't understand what the Dalek from Resolution, its recovery, I don't understand what that was for. What did they get from that? Yeah. What what was the... I I don't understand the whole idea. What was the motivation to design a security drone like a Dalek when it has all these sort of flaws in its design in a sense? They're clunky and not ideal. I'm not even Um, trying to take a cheap shot. I was generally confounded the whole episode i was trying to work out well what are they getting from the dalek because leo reverse engineering the mutant was his own little project not used in them i don't understand besides just the cool like shape of a dalek what what was the purpose i i genuinely don't get it it seemed like the aesthetics really even like taking it a step back it seems like there was no like no they weren't like worried about even the possibility of making a defense drone until the events of resolution and so it feels like such a non-point, like how why like they saw like the dead Dalek and were like, oh, let's make a defense drone out of that. 
but then also <laughs> not take any of the technology from it. And so yeah. I don't even, it doesn't work. The only conclusion that I can draw from it is that, like, they crunched the numbers and they determined that hijacking a GCHQ transport, breaking the law, um, committing murder or knocking that guy out, whatever they did, was more cost efficient than just hiring a team of designers, which yeah. I think just sums <laughs> yeah. up the magic of Chibnallho so much. It's the spreadsheet told us that this is the can best way to go. Can I just point out, on, on that note, um, just very briefly, the, at the start of the episode when the Prime Minister lady is speaking to Robertson, she has the most expository dialogue I have ever heard. Mm. I wrote it down. Um, yeah, she says, I'm surprised your toxic waste scandal in arachnids in the UK. No, no. She says, she says, if it ever gets out that I tipped you off about advanced technology being transported <laughs> from GCHQ, right? She says that whole line to him, right? If you've done something extremely illegal, right? Why, even though, if, though there's no one around to hear them, why would you literally lay out your entire plan? Both of, both of them are on the same page. He's fully aware of what she did for him. Why did she have to say it? I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not even an exposition thing because we see it the second yeah. beforehand. Yeah, so, like, like she, she could have just been getting told. Yeah, yeah she, like, and I get it's like I get it was like meant to to drive home the point that she arranged this, you know, or like she, you know, but you literally didn't need her to lay out her entire, you know her entire plan in a sense you just had to had to give her a line because like, if it ever gets out that I tipped you off or something like you shouldn't have to go on to the whole bit about about advanced technology you know <laughs> there's no point for that it was just so bizarre it was like Chibnall did not trust his viewers to put two and two together you know he had to lay it out for him this this frames Tom Tit's big failure of the episode as its length interestingly because I think it was Andrew Ellard that noted the episode seems to have a bunch of repeat scenes. So we have two scenes of Robertson and Joe conspiring, you know, evilly and going, we're in cahoots and we're pretty <laughs> yeah. evil. We're going to do an evil thing. And then like we're saying, we didn't even need either of those because we actually see the evil thing that, you know, they're talking about in the first place happen. It did. We didn't yeah. even need the exposition scene after it. And then we get another scene reinforcing their relationship. It's like that this episode's 71 minutes long. I feel like in the edit, a lot of this could have been taken out without that much damage. Speaking of actually speaking of like the the weird length and and the scenes that they chose to include and the ones they didn't, can anyone explain to me how the fam tracked down Robertson? Because it just does. As far as I'm aware, maybe I'm blanking on this, but doesn't go from them like discussing him maybe, and then suddenly they found him and they're speaking to him and confront him about the Dalek. Like, what happened there? How did they find him? And why does his team leave him off so easy? Yeah. They just leave. They're just like... It's so inert. You've just threatened our boss, but just go away now. No consequences. Goodbye. I mean, it's ironic that the fam do something so unusually competent in locating Robertson, given mm. that that whole sequence seems only to serve the purpose of establishing that the fam, once and for all, are utterly useless. They get their <laughs> one opportunity to prove themselves without the Doctor, and they achieve jack-fucking-shit. It's like, that, and that adds that sense of it being like the last straw. Like, Chibnall has an opportunity to prove that he can write companions, and he gives up. It's just... Oh. Drive me mad. Yeah, they really didn't achieve anything until the Doctor arrived. So it's especially bad since it's um, Graham and Ryan's last episode. That's like <laughs> yeah. the definitive note on them. It's like, oh, they the, absolutely the- and all the time we've shared with them the last like twenty one, twenty two, whatever episodes. This is where Graham and Ryan have like reached this point 
especially that quote that at the end Graham gives as they're walking away and he's like god this is tough isn't it it's like uh, <laughs> no what baffles me is what baffles me is that this is the guy who wrote Law and Order UK and other procedurals, which is a genre yes. which is about making the gathering of information into entertaining television. So I'm just like, is this what every episode of Law and Order UK is like? Just Bradley Walsh talking to one suspect, being like, oh, it's hard, isn't it? And then giving <laughs> up. If, if I can nerd out about uh, Chibnall's stuff for a second, a funny no. note. <laughs> he's, well, all his episodes of Law and Order are... Uh, adaptations of existing scripts from the American version of the show, oh which also stars Chris Noth. Oh uh, but so can he do the mechanical work of procedural stuff? Um, I guess it's Broadchurch, but in Law and Order, he was getting the work from someone else. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just how disinterested the fam seem in actually solving the plot, like, I think... I think it's supposed to be Chibnall's attempt at comedy where it's like, oh, they're sort of taking it lightly, but it just comes across as like, they don't actually care. Like first there's Graham's, oh, it's hard, isn't it? And then when um, Jack asks them what's going on in earth, they're just like boredly say, oh, Daleks. It's like, shouldn't they be excited about this or worried more like they should be terrified because it's the Daleks, but they're just like, you know, it's garden variety Daleks again. So it's like, if they don't care, why should I? It's, it's, yeah. Ridiculous. I feel like there's some weird parodic element to it where it's we're not supposed to take it seriously, and I hate that. Can I ask, what did we think of how Jack got the Doctor out of the prison? Missy, do you have an opinion on this? Um, I don't know if this counts as an opinion, but I thought it was the funniest part of the episode. Um, it Me was, too. It, it was like it was so ridiculously filmed. Jack shows up in a um what looks like uh, someone's drawn a blue circle in Photoshop, <laughs> and then they just have a leisurely jog, like, casually Chat. discussing yeah. the escape yeah. on the way out of this, like, super difficult prison. But on the actual mechanics of the escape, I do think, um, it, like, a lot of parts in this story, I feel like it's kind of, um, it serves to upstage the Doctor, and really, there are a lot of scenes where Jimnall writes something to to kind of up up another character, but in doing so, he really like devalues the character of the Doctor. Um, so the scene it was she's trapped in there for like how long is she trapped in there for? Nineteen years, at least, because that's how long it took him. She doesn't even appear to be trying to escape, and yeah. Jack has like a stupidly easy comical like he's barely even trying like yeah. he's laughing and yeah. joking the whole way through and it's so not hard for him and it really makes the doctor feel like an idiot which is the exact yeah. opposite of what you want so it's hilarious but also i hate it i i, I think an issue is we get this montage and the montage is of her listlessly going through prison life should the montage not be of her trying to escape every day yeah. Like I think Andrew Ellard brought up the chalk marks on the wall. The tally marks should be of escape attempts. They shouldn't be of another boring day in prison. I'm going to mope around and eat the terrible food and just life sucks, doesn't it? Like, who is this person? They should have just had, like, you know, a quick fire montage of her, like, you know, you could see her, like, I don't know, messing with a lock and then getting caught and being like, oh, darn, you know, <laughs> not like that. Um, but just like little quick uh, shots of her various escape attempts you can add the comedy element by making them be you know increasingly funny or something you know instead of just being like oh she's depressed and she's in prison for 19 years and she doesn't 
make any attempt to do anything. And by the way, there's no emotional consequences of the fact that she was locked up for 19 years. You know, you don't really feel that um, that, that had much of a toll on her. Um, it, so that was strange. One thing I did like was the idea of Jack committing lots and lots of crimes to get put yes, into prison yeah. alongside her. And that is that is just that was a quick throwaway line but it's it's one that's so fun and certainly for jack you know makes sense for him so can't wait till big finish does a box on that one well i was in, i was intrigued the doctor asks jack what type of crimes do you commit and he says perhaps tellingly left turn so i'm very curious if there's some kind of left-wing terrorism arc we might see in an upcoming <laughs> big finish box set for captain jack oh my god as part of that montage, they could have had um, the Doctor punching the wall repeatedly to try and break out like she didn't have yeah. any sense. <laughs> this would have been the case. perfect spot for um, Jack's death to come in purpose. Like, surely there's a way you could kind of cheat the prison by a prisoner who can die a trillion times. I feel like that might have been a fun way to incorporate Jack's jackiness. Yeah. Like, I don't know, he, he tries to escape and he gets shot and killed and then that's works into the sword. <laughs> it sounds pretty grim when we put it that way, actually. <laughs> Or even just like technically, like he could leave because he's no longer alive. He died. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I'm dead now. I'm not a prisoner anymore. Oh, yeah, the Miracle Day Oswald's parallels thing. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that. So. I was shocked, by the way, that they implied that he shoved the vortex manipulator. No, I'm not going into that. <laughs> it's the fact that. that, that yeah, that was, a, that was a bad wolf reference. Yeah, yeah, I know it was, but it was just like, I was surprised that Chibnall, Chibnall did it, you know? Um,. It's funny. I like the doctor's reaction to that. We, I just want to say, repeatedly we've come to this topic of how easily, how easy it would have been to take the elements of this episode and do something much better. And I think it just reiterates that you know you, you have to not care to fuck it up this badly. You have to not care. This is just, it's such proof positive on every single level that Chibnall don't care. He does not care. I, okay, the, go on. The, the the thing that really frustrated me is that we had the setup from was it the end of the Timeless Children. Was that yep. when she got yeah? So we had the setup from the end of the Timeless Children. She's going to prison, right? So that's mm-hmm. that in itself is interesting. You want to see where that goes. Then in Revolution, the prison plot didn't do anything. Didn't go anywhere. It didn't yes. really matter. It was a <laughs> convenient reason that the doctor would be away from the fam and therefore incite some sort of negative feeling in the fam towards the doctor. Um, so, which is such a shame because the doctor in prison is is such a good concept. It's it's yeah, been done yeah. before in various mediums in and the things books. like that. Yeah. yeah, in various mediums, and it's it's always interesting. Um, because how does someone who is constantly bouncing off the walls, has to do things, has to be occupied, you know, all of that, can't stand staying still in one place. How do they cope with being locked up? And it, it ties in, of course, to the whole idea that she should have been having ex- escape attempts because it does not it does not track with what we know about the Doctor that she would just passively accept this, you know? Um, they could have made a whole episode out of it. Well, yeah. they, they, did, they made Heaven Sent is entirely about the Doctor yeah. trying to get out of a prison and it's one of the most yeah. acclaimed yeah, show, exactly. episodes of the exactly. whole show. And they could have done like a very a, a comedic take on this. For example, why did Jack have to go in alone to rescue the Doctor? Why did Jack not because he had a vortex manipulator? Why did Jack not go to Earth, pick up the fam, and then it's uh, then it's the Jack and the fam helping the Doctor escape prison? And then you don't even need a Dalek plot because that the Dalek plot achieved nothing. It didn't 
say anything. It didn't do anything. It wasn't interesting. But the whole, the whole initial premise for the episode was more interesting than the rest of it, you know? If, so, if you took the fam to the prison, you could have a great comic beat of, well, everyone else is dissatisfied with the food like the doctor is. Graham takes one of his cheese and pickle sandwiches out of his jacket and he looks around yes. happily and goes into it. Yes. It's great stuff. Great stuff. That's, that's cyclical writing that I want to see, you know? Graham's sandwiches making their grand return. So, um, but no, I was I was so frustrated with that. It genuinely, the prison plot didn't need to exist. But ironically, it was the thing that should have existed far more than the Dalek plot. Yeah, Astro, you brought up the interesting point of how this continues on from the Timeless Children. Can anyone else um, help me out here? So, what's the Doctor's mindset at the end of the Timeless Children? What's the Doctor's mindset here? Because we get the Timeless Children ends right with. All this new law like explodes the doctor's brain, and then the fugitive doctor is like, "Chill, it's pretty much the same. Go on as you are." And she kind of does that, although she defeats the master by saying, "Now I'm more than you." Okay, it's a bit confusing. Then we go into this one, and we have the doctor say to Jack, "I don't know if I'm all right or not. Um, I guess we'll see." Uh, can someone help me draw the through lines here? Can someone help make the arc make sense to me? Basically, nineteen years was just enough time for her to regress from whatever tiny modicum of character development she had in the Timeless Children, and basically just go back to going like, "Oh no, no! Why would they lie? Why would they lie?" She just spent every night in prison going, "Why would they lie? Why would they lie?" <laughs> Why would they in bed, it's just yeah, that's that's it's, the thing. That's her arc. It's it's so weird to me because it's like the Timeless Children ends with her going. You know, nah, screw all that stuff. The master told me I'm me. I'm going to continue on. And then in this, it's like they backtrack her just to unbacktrack her. Like, what, 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 what yeah, are like, we doing here? The, the Timeless Children ended in a way that you almost feel like that storyline was kind of wrapped up. I know there's yeah. a lot of, um, there's a lot of questions that I do not want the answer to, right? That, that it, that it, um, arose and the, but there's a lot of questions that a lot of fans want the answer to but ultimately when it came to the doctor's sort of emotional state it felt pretty closed you know it was like okay I've learned this massive thing about myself but do you know what I'm still the same person and that's what's important but then revolution comes along and she's apparently having this identity crisis all over again so much th- so that Ryan has to sit on the the stairs of emotion with her and have a wee heart to heart and explain the concept of change that, to the doctor. That, uh, <laughs> that conversation uh, really fascinates me. I think I like it. I certainly like it more than Gig does. What I like about it is that I kind of felt like it was two people communicating. That was pretty wow, cool. Wow, high bar. We don't, <laughs> well, we, we, One we don't person always spoke get, to the other. So We don't always get this, but it actually felt like I have an emotional state and you have an emotional state. Our states somewhat relate to each other. We're going to communicate what our states are and how we might be able to progress our states. Like there was an actual, there was stuff going on here. Like the beanie thing was an actual exchange of, you know, I'm a dork. I don't know how to communicate to you. I'm annoyed by you. You abandoned me and I'm kind of grading at your presence in my life at all. All this, there was an actual kind of almost, dare I say, interiority to the characters here. And yet, and yet, and yet, I'm kind of confused by the roles they were each missy i think you had a good thing about the um weird kind of reversal of the characters in this exchange do you want to talk about that um yeah okay actually it's it's similar to the thing about jack breaking the doctor out of prison and it being so easy for him and bad for her where it's that like i i agree with you i did i did quite like it but i liked it 
from the perspective of being a Ryan stan, which I was. Yeah. Um, so it's good for him. It does genuinely show interiority for him. I know it's not a high bar for a Chibnall episode, but it does. But because, like, through the way it gives Ryan this interiority in this way that he explains this concept of change and stuff, it devalues the Doctor, who is all about change. She's regenerated so many times. She's blah, 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 blah. And the fact that Ryan is, like, explaining it to her and not in um Yeah. Not in a way where she knows what he's talking about and is just letting him talk, but in a way that, like, she genuinely seems to be learning from him. That doesn't mm. sit well with me at all because, yeah, it, it just it devalues the Doctor as a character and places her in, like, a very passive role where, like, every element of the show is being explained or given or handed or done for her. And she just sits there and, like, has it happened to her? I have a very pertinent point on this scene, which is that... Uh, we may have all heard talk before the special aired that there was one scene in the special that was new, that wasn't filmed with the main photography for the special, but was filmed later. And there was lots of speculation. You know, it was always the usual crowd going, is it a secret regeneration scene? It wasn't. Uh, people were wondering all sorts of things. Is it a Series 13 tease? What could it be? Uh, on Twitter... There's an interesting thread where someone posits the idea that it was this very beanie scene because earlier this year, Tozen Cole shared a video of himself with long hair at Roadblock Studios where they filmed the show, and he was wearing a beanie during that indoor scene, ah. a scene where the doctor commented on Ryan wearing it because presumably he had to cover his long hair. Yeah. So this because- whole scene may have been an addition. Why do you think that would be? Why would they add this scene in? Before we answer, can I just say that um, the Chibnall explanation for why Ryan all of a sudden put the beanie on, relating it back to the woman who found Earth and Ryan's yellow beanie, is quite possibly the most intelligent bit of writing in all of Chibnall Who. That's just beautiful. I just want to bring up that in the immediately next scene, the beanie is gone again. As soon as he leaves the TARDIS, that beanie is off. So he's in the TARDIS, he puts the beanie on. It's cold in the TARDIS. And then just, yeah. Fair play, okay, it's gotten the TARDIS. But still, I think it really just proves the fact that it was so obviously inserted. And the beanie thing is just explaining away them covering up Tosin's hair. Yeah, because yeah, I, I just went back to the episodes here and you don't see his hair at any point. It's like a shot of it, of his hands with the beanie and he's putting it on, but you don't get a chance to see um, anything. So yeah, that, that would make absolute sense. By the way, Neil, I would just like to point out that it's absolutely hilarious to me that the we've fallen so far that two characters having a conversation is seen as a win, you know, in Chibnall Who. Um, well, the last special, uh, you know, raised the idea of that strange family talking about the need. Oh my gosh. So I was <laughs> no. just happy to see that followed through. Resolution also had a conversation between Orion and his dad, Aaron, which was like a worse sort of version of going, having that feelsy conversation. And in that one, it didn't really go anywhere. Whereas this one with Ryan and the Doctor, as you said, they at least talk to each other rather yeah. than past each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even, I don't even dislike that scene, uh, so to speak. I thought it was a bit strange and Missy made the absolute great point that it it does devalue the doctor in a sense but i don't have an issue with the companion sometimes being there to be sort of Hmm. to be an emotional guide for the doctor i think that's good you know i I really enjoy when you get scenes like that it just felt a little bit strange because the way ryan was explaining it to her as if was as if the concept of change is somehow new 
and something that she'd never had to deal with before. And therefore, you know, it would have been a really good scene if that was the case, you know. Um, but it's not. And um, I don't know. And it, it's one of those scenes where it also felt like, you know, almost the writer speaking to the audience, you know, um, trying to reassure us that change is good sometimes. What, um, what yeah. What do you think compelled Chibnall to add this scene back in if this theory that it was an additive shoot is correct? He listened to Who Cares and realised we hated the timeless children. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I genuinely... It was it was one of the scenes that it stood out for me. You know, I thought it was, it was good. Um, even if I'm still a bit confused about why it took so long to get to Osaka, but whatever. Um, I, I, I would love to know why he went back. What's interesting about it is that I, I don't believe the episode was underrunning yeah. by any stretch. So it doesn't feel like, oh, we need to quickly chuck in a scene to fill up the time. We definitely don't. It's like 71 minutes long, Jesus Christ. But like, and it, it doesn't, nor does it, as good as it is, I do think it's one of the better scenes of the episode well that's unfortunate i've just had that thought it's one of the better scenes of the episode but so yeah it's like what what, did chibnall think it was it was it was really so important that they had to come back at a later date and fill it in what's weird to me is the fact that it is one of the the genuinely sort of um character driven scenes in it Mm. um and it is strange to me and because it's character driven therefore it feels more important than any of the other like you know you know things like the conversate the um pointless extra conversation between robertson and the prime minister like things like that you could have lost that in favor of this character driven stuff so it's weird to me that such a character driven scene and therefore something that feels so important was an afterthought you know um and I, i really don't know why that would have come, came about like <laughs> well, why it, they... wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first time that something comes as an afterthought in the editing process during chip who i mean in resolution we have the guard getting changed to gay in adr and then in spyfall part two we had nor's execution scene being removed in the editing suite at the last minute like it's a thing with chip who i absolutely believe he could have watched a version of this episode and then thought oh shit ryan and the doctor have no fucking bonding time in this episode ryan has no emotional arc let's go back let's insert this whole scene four minutes to osaka everybody you know, if if we're talking oddities, can I just point out, as we all probably noticed, there's two different scenes in the episode in the greenly lit Osaka facility where Yaz and Captain Jack look up at the Daleks and there's like ominous music as we pan up over the towers of them. Why did we get two versions of that? Oh, honestly, I don't know. Because it's, because it's scary. <laughs> Because it's spooky and it's Daleks. And, oh my gosh, it's the Daleks. Did you see the Daleks? This is a Daleks story. It fell up, it fell up time because the plot was so thin that, um, yeah, they were given this time slot and he just had to do what he had. Oh, I've, I've thought, of something that, I thought of something that annoys no. me about the episode. Ah. Uh, there's Okay, so the um, defense drone Daleks, setting aside the fact I still don't understand why they're a thing, I don't understand why we needed the Daleks at all to reverse engineer this. Anyway, so we have uh, like a riot-controlled drone. It has a bunch of things to deter people, to disperse people. Cool, it looks really intimidating. It can replace police, it can replace guards at, you know, tourist places. Interesting stuff. I I like this. This is a cool sci-fi idea. What if we had drones to do all these jobs and they were a bit over the top, they were a bit too much, and they were replacing police 
there's lots of interesting stuff here, isn't there, to do with the police, which the show has always flirted with. Chibnall's era, I wish it flirted more with, but there's an element connecting it there. I think it's a really interesting idea. A Dalek in the form of a policeman that's there to deter people and to call off riots. That's I, I love this. I really want to see this. Uh, we don't even get them fighting the bronze Time War Daleks. We don't even get that. What we do get is the clone Daleks magically teleporting into them, resolution style, and then we just get a classic Dalek versus Dalek fight, impure Daleks versus pure Daleks. We've got this so many times in the show alone, even setting aside the other media. It's like, I wanted to see these shell Daleks, these Dalek cases that were human mechanical inventions with no soul, with no mutant, with no brain, just with AI and like their own combat and dispersal, you know, uh, weapons. I wanted to see them face off against the bronze Daleks. Imagine the bronze Daleks going, what the hell? These aren't even alive. These are like cyber Daleks. These are things made in our image. You know, it's like a religious thing almost. These are made in our image. Why are the humans taking our image and making something in our image? I think all that could be really potent. I think all that could be really interesting. But we don't get that. We just get the classic Daleks versus impure Daleks in a slightly different format. That re- that truly disappointed me. I was quite interested in the idea of shell Daleks versus mm. real Daleks. I just realized, um, wh- when did they get guns? <laughs> Good question, you know. <laughs> they, they start out, they, they don't, they have like a water cannon, you know, instead of a gun. And then all of a sudden when they're installed and when they go rogue, they suddenly have regular, regular Dalek laser guns. Where did those come from? Did they get installed in them? Why? I guess they- maybe the explanation is that since the Dalek was secretly doing all that shit behind Leo's back or wherever it was, it was se- maybe it just got the, the deadly gun installed. Yeah, yeah. yeah On the topic I guess so. Of the stupidity of the whole Dalek thing and how we got the lame generic Dalek versus generic Dalek fight, I think that speaks to the whole... The essence of this whole Dalek plot and how stupid and pointless it is, right? Because, Neo, what you're proposing with a story about these um, Dalek-based things, the idea of a Dalek being used for something that isn't a Dalek, I think Chibnall refuses to write that because what Chibnall's pursuing is that connection of it being an actual Dalek. Hence, we've got to have it be cloned from the original Recon Scout Dalek. We've got to have actual Dalek mutants cloned and teleported into them to operate them. It's this idea that it's not the idea of the Dalek that's important, but our lore knowledge that it, that they're actual Daleks. That, and he thinks that that's the bit that's important about having a Dalek story. So rather than trafficking in ideas and themes and concepts, it's just this sense of like, well, it's in continuity. These are Daleks. So that now it's a real Dalek story. And I think it's that fetishism of things that are fictional just for their own sake, rather than for what they actually bring to a story that characterises, I think, a lot of this era. Uh, that's a really good point. It made me think of something that I was thinking, like, over just like since I've seen it, I've only seen it the once, um, is that there are an awful lot of things in this story that... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. They have to do a lot of legwork to to arrive at the incredibly uninspired, uninteresting, bland, nothing plot that Chimnal is like so driven towards. Like uh, as you said, they have to clone the things from the original Recon Dalek, and they have to get the blah 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 and blah 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 so that they can be Daleks, so that we can have the boring Dalek story. And I think that is. A great encapsulation of Chibnall, how hard he works to make it uninteresting. 
I love that whole scene where Dalek Leo is just monologuing exposition endlessly to the Doctor for no clear reason, just explaining how he did every last bit of the plan. It's so dull. It's like the It Takes You Away solid track thing all over again. It's like, shut the fuck up, please. You know what frustrates me, and it truly it does arise emotions in me, it really frustrates me, is this isn't like, you know, the ghost monument is just... Well, to me, it just seems like a Terry Nation-esque. We're trekking across a dangerous planet, except it's not that dangerous. There's not really much there. Like, it can be executed well, but there's not really any ideas fermenting there that excite me. It's just something that if done well, it's pretty good. But Revolution of the Daleks has so many ideas flinging around that I really like, and I'd really like to see done well. The Doctor in Prison, like Astra said, it's been done excellently before in other media. Why not do it well here? Shell Daleks. Uh, this idea has been toyed with before, sometimes interestingly, sometimes well. Why not do a big, great version of it here? Uh, the Doctor's companions having to cope without the Doctor. Knew Who's done this all the time, very well. There's all these great ideas, and I think they actually are great. More than most episodes this era, I think we have potent ideas here that could have been really good. Uh, and then it's it just sucks that they're not really... There's not much is done with them. Like, that's... What disappoints me is that this doesn't just feel like a nothing episode where it would have been boring no matter what. This feels like an episode with promise to me. And so it's sad to see, you know, she's the one that broke the promise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> one thing is, the, as well with the Daleks, it just, it felt like a bit of a retread with resolution with uh, a Dalek out of its case and taking over someone and using it for e- using them for evil deeds. Um, and and by the way, I still hate that concept. I still hate the idea of making Daleks these powerful, scary things outside of their case. And I think that kind of, for me, that misses the point of them. Um, um, they're meant to be these pathetic wee things that can't do anything without all this technology around them. Are, are, we, are you talking about the Daleks or the fam? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Neil. Um, just on the note of Daleks, though, I've got. Um, I wrote this down because I thought it was absolutely hilarious. But um, you know, in Robertson's and the Tardis, and he, um, the the Doctor keeps mentioning Daleks to him, and Robertson's like, I don't know what that word means, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. and, and instead of explaining what they actually are the doctor starts going off on one about how they're insidious and relentless and clever and they'll spread if not stop stopped never underestimate a dalek right and she never at any point stops explaining and be like yeah so they're aliens okay and like so robertson's just standing there utterly baffled he knows he's got a list of adjectives to describe what a dalek is but he doesn't actually know i thought you know, that was yeah i noticed that the episode had a few times robertson not know what people were talking about and say the word has no meaning. And it's weird that she gets so angry at him. Was there like a theme or a message here? Because it happened a couple of times, Robertson not knowing the word. And then the doctor's like anguished. How can you not know this word? Am I missing like a point here? It feels so intentional that there was meant to be an idea to that. Yeah, it's it's like you you could go deep into it and see some sort of commentary on how everyone should know Daleks because they're so iconic, Mm. you know. Um, But no, I, I don't get it. And it's also like she was... Um, and to be clear, I'm not. I am not excusing Robertson of anything he did. He's deplorable, right? He's awful, right? But the whole idea specifically of using Daleks or using, you know, basing this technology off Daleks—that was of ignorance of what he was doing. In a sense, he was still doing yeah. it for evil, evil reasons. Like, you know, he would have found a way to make these awful drones of in some capacity anyway. So, so I'm not excusing that. But I'm just saying the specific act of using. Dalek technology he was completely ignorant about 
about it, but but the doctor kept speaking to him as if he was somehow fully aware of what he was doing, and he should have known that Daleks are insidious and relentless and clever, and he shouldn't have done all this. Like, and Robertson's just standing there, like I have no idea what you're talking about, you know. Um, so it's like it, she's I, treating it's you know those stories where like uh, well we have in Doctor Who when these cultists try and resurrect Harold Saxon. Like, we have so many stories where, like, people sin as they're trying to bring something evil back. We've got these, like, stories of Dalek acolytes, you know, people who want Davros back, Daleks back. That's all fine. But you're right. He wasn't doing that. He just thought it was cool technology, whatever yeah. was in the shell that he got out of it. So he's not really doing a big sin, exactly, at least the way she sees it. Yeah. Also, one bizarre thing about the episode is Robertson was criticised more for for using Dalek technology than the fact he was creating these evil <laughs> evil security drones in the first place. There was no there was no there was no focus on the fact that what he was doing was fundamentally evil regardless of the technology he was using. It was more like it almost came across as like the doctor was like, it's totes fine if you want to create these security drones, just don't use alien technology to do it, you know? Which which hopefully that was not the message, but because there was no effort made to criticize that about um you know especially from her it was just kind of weird you know it was like she cared more about the you know the alien aspect than the fact that he was violating human rights you know i mean <laughs> so, at, the, at um, the end of the day if you try and read any sort of political aspect into the daleks in this story i mean what's the doctor's solution to the daleks she just calls in some more daleks to deal with those daleks <laughs> like any element of trying to condemn i don't know the police state or fascism or whatever will make them out to be like daleks or daleks but it, 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 it it's it's non-existent yeah. it fizzles out it's gone you know the worst thing they can say is that oh no some aliens might teleport in it, it it's so bad. Oh, it's nothing and to I'm, say. And I'm, I'm not, and this isn't even, as far as I'm, I can remember right now, this is not the first time this has happened, but it was strange that in the midst of all this sort of references to, to issues and social issues, it, it feels weird that the culmination of the story, the solution to the story was was using racial purity against, you know, do you do you know what I'm getting at? Um, that felt weird. Yeah, but it's it's just like within the context of everything else that's going on. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. Because again, he was making no point. There was no... We got no yeah, conclusion yeah. from all this. Let, let, let's think this through. So the Daleks are most often these days used as like a fascist or Nazi uh, parallel. All right. Yeah. Uh, the doctor even talks about the impurity of the Daleks. Oh, you know, for a race so obsessed with purity, blah blah blah. And so the impure Daleks, and well, are they impure because they ate humans? I, that's a kind of weird take for me. They weren't even hybridized with like the Japanese workers. They were just eating them. Is that is that yeah. what's made them impure? They were they were grown from a pure Dalek. So so yeah. As, so you know. Okay. So that so that so that's what it is. Let's say they're impure. Whatever. The bronze Daleks who are the Nazi, you know, allegory, are pissed off with the impure Daleks. Who are the impure Daleks... Who are the impure Daleks standing in for? And then how does their destruction... Getting trapped, because they all go into a trap... I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I genuinely don't know what point Chevno was trying to make here. And that's the thing. The thing is, I don't think he even thought about it. You know, he wanted, he wanted the... In terms of the whole things, like, you know, the, the whole fake riot part earlier on and the whole idea of using Daleks as police drones and things like that in the first place, he wanted the broad strokes of something that people would watch and go, oh, 
we understand this because we've been seeing it in the real world. Mm. But then he took those concepts, those ideas, those things that and you know that are very real to people, and did did nothing. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't make a point. You know, he. Yeah. I, I can't even criticize him for for making a a. Aside from the fact that um that it was ignored by the doctor and stuff and the whole Robertson idea, but aside from that, um, that comes across as more like he just didn't want to get into it or something. I don't know. Yeah, the the issue is like I'm cool with the Daleks not being used as like Nazi parallels. I, th- I think they are used that way, not as parallels more often than um some might think, and I'm all for that. Yeah. But he invokes the whole like police state stuff with the riot scene. And so then you can't just, like, evoke the political atmosphere and then, like, disrobe it towards the end. It's just going to yeah. confuse me. Uh, and he specifically makes the c- comparison, or, like, he evokes the idea of the whole Nazi sort of um, thing with the Daleks by mentioning the purity aspect and things like that. So so he evokes them all, but he just he just leaves it hanging. And, and it's not... It's not the obsession with purity that's their undoing, which is what her line about purity kind of read to me. That's not, it's their, um, yeah. they got tricked into a trap. That's their yeah. undoing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very strange. And I'm not saying that necessarily that Chibnall should have said anything because I don't trust him to say anything that is, um, that is a good point in a sense. Um, but the fact is, if you're going to start, you know, bringing in these ideas, you should at least be aware of what you're saying or what people might be able to take from this. And if you're going to have some sort of conclusion, make it be a clear one. So, so I don't know. Um, I would, like I said, I would just rather that the whole Dalek plot just didn't exist because it didn't go anywhere. It didn't say anything. It, yeah, it was kind of pointless. Gig. Mm-hmm. Any Dalek points to share? Um. Well, basically... I think the impression that I get is just, it's a bit like, do you remember that bit in um, the Five-ish Doctors where Moffat's playing with those toys of the Doctors and mm. stuff? But, well, I think I feel like that's basically what Chibnall's doing with Daleks, except he's he's playing with bits that we recognise. So the two Dalek factions, it's just ripping off Remembrance, right? I think as a fan who recognises all these bits and pieces from past stories, he's just, he's chucking them in, and essentially that's all they are to him. They're just like bits of toys, you know? And I think we what we talk about here... What we're talking about is the ideas behind those things and, you know, what does, what does it stand for to have one Dalek faction fighting another? What is the idea of racial purity play and what's the subtext? What's all those things? These, these aren't playing into this version of the show because, like we said before, the idea, the ideas don't matter. It is all about just the symbols and the, the continuity they have as bits from Doctor Who's past that are being flung together. And it's just that incredibly superficial collision of familiar images and just familiar superficial notions that are just forming the entire uh, text of the show at this point it's just an utterly derivative vortex of just endless 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 recycling and just endless just reusing shit from elsewhere and i think it's going to ensure in the long run that there is no cultural footprint left by this era of the show i think i think i think you could take that a step further and like it's not He's not just doing that with uh, icons and things relative to Doctor Who, but just in general. Like, you have the footage of the fake riot at the beginning. Uh, you have the police state stuff, the the use of the Prime Minister. There are all these things that, that have meanings. And in some cases, like, really pertinent, real meanings. But Chris Timnall either do- doesn't 
think about or doesn't want to engage with them. He's just using them as more pieces in his game of Doctor Who. So, yeah, it, like, is awful. I feel like a point someone might raise to this is, well, it's been 50 however many years, there's been so many Dalek stories, it's a little bit unfair to count on, you know, a new thing being done with the Daleks or whatever. Uh, I really resist that. Even in Big Finish do a lot of Dalek stories, okay? They do a, a mother load of Dalek stories. Uh, a couple of months ago, they did like a finale thing to the Eighth Doctor's initial time war range. And it had a big story about the Daleks and Davros in it. Um, and it did something I thought was cool with the Daleks that I hadn't seen a Dalek story do before. And that was in 2020. You know, that's however many years after 1963. If these people who do a trillion Dalek stories can manage making new and interesting points about Daleks, surely the person running the show, you know, can have a decent crack at it. My second point, uh, Missy, you recently saw Remembrance of the Daleks, right? That gig brought up. Yeah. Was that your first time seeing it? It was my first time seeing it. Do you agree with uh, gigs like the rival factions? Do you do you get much out of the connections or anything? Do you think Chibnall was drawing on Remembrance in Revolution? I think ab- absolutely. I think um, I I thought that during Remembrance with the Daleks, I could see a lot of just New Who st- Dalek stories in general in Remembrance, whether or not Chibnall was actively drawing from Remembrance of the Daleks is another story because I don't. I feel so rude to say, but like, I mean, basically, yeah, probably he was drawing from it, but in such like a blasé, bland, uninteresting way that like, was he even, or like, even just the basic idea of like, oh, what if thingies fought one another? It's like, he doesn't even, like, even the most basic point about rival factions of a thing fighting barely come up in Revolution of the Daleks to the point where I don't even want to say that he did take inspiration from anything. (laughs) But yes, I do think in the broadest way possible, there is a bit of remembrance in this, but like only surface level. Right, right. What does our Dalek dude think of all the Dalek stuff in this episode? I don't know if I'd say I'm a Dalek guy, but I do think that they have (laughs) just a really good track record as villains, and I find them fascinating as both antitheses to Doctor Who and the Doctor and what that all represents, and also just as a cultural force unto themselves with the whole Dalek mania thing and the the sort of anomaly of people tending to know the Daleks more than they know the rest of the show. I find all that very interesting. Um, And I think that Chibnall... I, I do think that this special is sort of basically a gumbo of like the three 80s Dalek stories, Resurrection, Revelation and Remembrance, because um, I think those were pretty much the Dalek stories of Chib's peak Anorak stage, you know, that's when he was going on open air and whatnot. Um, so I think you have the juxtaposition of the Daleks and the police imagery, which is an uh, extremely memorable image from Resurrection. Um, you have the idea of Daleks feeding humans to people and that kind of um, exploitation angle touched upon briefly in this with the the humans once again being used for food. And um, again, like Remembrance, we have the Doctor pitting two Dalek factions against each other, only this time it's intentional. Back then it was just an unintended side effect. Um, And so that was kind of interesting on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was just thinking, you know, how much more 
evocative feeding people to Daleks was when it was done in 1985 or whenever that was, 1984 probably. And here it's just kind of a, yeah, a, a footnote in a far too long drawn out exposition scene. That reminds me, uh, you know what else, you know what else worked better in the past? Yeah. I think uh, in 2007, a Harry Potter reference worked a lot better in the Shakespeare <laughs> Code. Oh. I was, oh. Ooh, yes. that, yeah, man. Um, what, what was the thinking there? Yeah. Really, he, really, he couldn't th- thought. Okay, so the idea. Okay, sorry, she mentioned. Okay, one of the classics. Could he not have gone for something at least that is not uh, currently very controversial for very good reasons? I, it might have been overly cute, uh, but I think it was Elizabeth Sandifer online that said it would have been a fun idea to have her read out uh, the start of a Target novelization for Doctor Who. Because uh, not many people would get that reference, but it would be like a cute little thing. But any book other than Harry Potter. Honestly, if, yeah. if, if, cool. if you want a cute reference for the same target audience, just have a quote Hamilton or something. Yeah, just literally yeah. any of those super things <laughs> yeah. that that sort of person likes. You know, literally anything. But honestly, the fact it was Harry Potter just tracks so much. It was depressing. Marvel movie script. Um, I want to live in the alternate universe where it was Pride and Prejudice. And she says, any, any good man in possession of good fortune must be in one of a wife. And then we hear River Song's voice come from off screen and she says something like, oh, I don't know about a good fortune, but how about a wife? And then it's River Song instead of Jack Harkness. That's the world I want to live in. Um, yeah, Moffat would have so made good. it a quote from a classic novel. See, that's what Moffat would have done. Something like that. He loves yeah. those novels. Um, so you guys were kind of broaching the point that once the defense drones become infiltrated by the car-led mutants, that the whole metaphor of the story kind of becomes meaningless. And I get that. Like, it, it totally does devolve into just science fiction mush. And I think that's what Chibnall was trying to do, was to create a big, exciting, explosive sci-fi story. Um, but what I got from it was notes of, um, like... Okay, so, so you have the the police drones being um, used by the Prime Minister. And basically what the episode portrays as her mistake is outsourcing it to a private company. So what the episode is really doing is sort of a cautionary tale against privatised defence and whatever. And I, I think I see the, the drones getting infiltrated by the Khaled mutants as kind of like getting hacked or, or, or compromised by a foreign power, basically. And this is where I think Chibnall's reactionary... Um, undercurrents really start to creep in because we have things like Robertson talking about the the drone Daleks he says I'm backing them like he like he would back a foreign country and I think that is one of the most insidious things about this is that like basically the episode is just um legitimizing the prime minister's premise which is that the the UK does need more stronger defense but Chibnall's bugbear is that it shouldn't be outsourced to a privatized company it should just should just be like the status quo basically and so think of the um, daleks as russia but bigger is what you're saying right i think that's basically (laughs) what we have here um more subtle certainly than it was in spyfall but i still got a really strong vibes of the whole yeah russophobic and just confusion from chibnall's chibnall's massive brain that's good thank you for that Uh, that's great yeah yeah and, and on the purity point, um, I think that whole line of the, for a race born out of mutation, they're pretty obsessed with purity. I think that line totally misses the point of the Daleks because um, basically what the doctor's saying there is she's implying that the Daleks mistakenly believe that they're pure when really they're not. But the point of the Daleks and of anti-fascism narratives like, like Doctor Who does when they pit her against the Daleks is that purity is 
an artificial contract construct which is set you know um, basically according to the terms of whoever is is assessing it which in the dialects case would be Davros but um, it's just like in Chibnall's lazy need for that scene to have like a gotcha moment like oh the dialects are so hypocritical it's again the confused ideals coming through which is that um, it's like pure dialects are better than impure dialects again just sort of legitimizing the the whole threat, the whole She does, she does have a pattern of legitimising yeah. racism in that way, doesn't she? I'm so much <laughs> yeah. more than you. Yeah. <laughs> it's that classic uh, ideology of this era is um, the Doctor is a vanguard against rule-breaking. That's what she abhors. It's hypocrisy. It's skirting around rules that she really hates and that she fights against. Uh, many examples, many such cases of this, <laughs> of this being a thing in the era. So, yeah, that really ties in. It's like the whole thing, and it's not just the... Dalek purity hypocrisy. It's also the. Do you mean like the the whole corruption of Robert's scheme in the first place that she never really calls out, or something else? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, that it's uh, that is that Robertson's problem is is just using the Dalek design, not that he's like making these super drones to like hurt riders or whatever. That the problem is just there in the shape yeah. of the Dalek. It's like you're, you're, you you know. Do you know what I think about the whole design conundrum? Is that um. I think lots of people in the lead up to this had a sort of problem with this episode rehashing old ground done by Victory of the Daleks, which is not a complaint that I had personally. Um, but it's just like, yeah, the, the establishment using Daleks um, just for their own strength, blah, blah, blah. I think they should have lent into that. Um, I think I can't fully remember if in Victory of the Daleks, the Ironsides were actually like used publicly, but they had all those posters printed out. I think they should have made it like um, the Daleks are a piece of World War Two nostalgia type um you know a fetishization of you know when england was stronger and blah 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 so so it's like okay gchq is shipping out this world war ii antique this is a unique opportunity for us to take that and you know re-establish it um i think that would have been really cool but that would require you know um referencing heavily an episode which was widely detested um but i think that would have redeemed victory of the daleks in a way by by um you know, capitalizing on its most surface level interesting element, which is the sort of jingoistic um, reappropriation of dialects. Um, and they could have done like a whole nostalgic revival thing. And But it was not to be. But yeah, my mind goes to these places during this episode. Yeah. Mia, you just mentioned that 13 is a um, vanguard for the rules and she's very against rule breaking. And I've just realized um, that's why she didn't break out of jail. <laughs> yeah yeah this is this is my whole thing of like there's a point where you ha i i personally have to accept that like i'm not going to agree with what the show is saying anymore so it's all kind of immaterial at the end of the day but um i feel like the doctor sort of antagonizing the the other inmates i feel like like my vision of the doctor is that she would kind of try to understand them or like reach out to them i mean i know that it's an anthropomorphic statue and a Edward Munch, you know, monster and whatever. But I feel like there, there should be some solidarity there because she is literally a criminal. Um, you know, some of the biggest moments of the show, the war games, is like her getting the cops called on on her at the end. And um, her whole routine about like, oh, I'm in prison for being me. It's um, It has the energy of like that Kanye West tweet where he's like, once again, I'm being persecuted for presenting new ideas. It's just like, I'm special. I'm in prison for false reasons. Everyone else deserves to be here. Um, and it's just so such an ugly characterization i just bulk from it instinctively <laughs> i really dislike this doctor um and i just have to accept that you know that's just what the show is now uh i can't blame 
the thirteenth Doctor for being herself. Um, but yeah, it's such a bugbear of mine. Wow, <laughs> I, I didn't know we had a NMD in the call. <laughs> <laughs> Jody is my Doctor for clarity. That that doesn't mean I like every. But well, everyone is my Doctor. The Morbius Doctors are my Doctor. Meta Ten is my Doctor. The Valyard is my Doctor. I don't believe in invalidating anyone. They're all. Yeah. Doctors, I think it's silly to draw up lines, you know, saying so and so isn't a doctor. I don't like that authoritative canon. Yeah, they're all Neo. Does, does that mean war is also your doctor? No, right? So <laughs> I had a feeling you wouldn't say yes to that. She's the exception, she's actually trending right now, which is sweet. Oh, hmm. uh, yes. Um, Joe Martin is my doctor. I'm just oh, yeah, throwing that out great. there. Oh, Love she's her. amazing. Oh, okay. Seeing the doctor and doctor lines and things, the doctor does and says um the line i'm the doctor and i'm the one who stops the daleks that um the that line paired with the music i think it was meant to be an epic line where you're meant to be like oh my god it's the doctor um but it 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 came across as uh well i don't know if this was intentional but it felt like a rehash of you know in flatline when the doctor has the whole the man who stops the monsters line um Mm. which Mm. In Flatline, I I have issues with that line in itself. I don't know, it just feels a bit clunky. Um, but I don't... The delivery of it comes across okay. It gives me that vibe of... um, What's the second Doctor's line? You know the one. Oh, uh, the, there, there are, are some corners are, of the universe corners, which yeah. have bred the most terrible things. Things <laughs> that stand against everything we believe in. They must be fought. I believe that's how it goes. I get a little xenophobic vibe um, from the Doctors <laughs> in those speeches. Yeah, and and the only reason yeah. in Flatline when the line happens and I, every single time I watch it, it just comes across as clunky. Um, I think it's specifically to do with the wording of it and having issues with it in Flatline, but but the delivery of it works just fine. The delivery of it and of that sort of line in in Revolution did not come across. Um, it didn't it didn't come across naturally. Um. Not an issue with Jodie, but more like just the way it's placed in the episode. It was just kind of out of the blue. I don't know. That I heard to phrase it as like the one who stops the Daleks, like like some sort of mythic role. That it, yeah. that it's not earned at all, is yeah. it? Like none of the, the there's no setup for that. It doesn't feel mythic in any way. It's really it's a combination of the the flatline thing, as you say, and also the beat in Into the Dalek, where she's like, yeah, he's yeah. like, I didn't know who I was until I went to Scarrow. Um, and yeah, it doesn't have any place in the episode. It's it's supposed to be the culmination of the Doctor's self-doubt. Um, but it's like, what triggered this restoration? Is it literally just coming into contact with the Daleks? And in that case, I don't like that whole Manichaean thing of like, the Doctor has to... Um, the Daleks have to exist in order for the Doctor to want to do good. You know, it's kind of just, again, condoning the existence of the Daleks. And um, yeah... It's just the Doctor's whole arc in this episode is so inert. She, she, she's, she's angsting about her missing memories, but that's not a story that you can actually act upon. It's not actionable. All you can do is sit and think about it um, until you've decided that you want to feel better. Uh, yeah. Which she does. <laughs> and then that's the arc. That's, that's, all, that's all we get. I don't want to talk about another episode too much, but what the Into the Dalek... Well, is it a reference? I don't know if it was meant to be, but the the Into the Dalek similarity makes me think of is that line in Into the Dalek, I know at least Gig is going to agree with me here, is kind of a cool retcon. 
I'm interested that by the idea of the Doctor defining himself in opposition to the Daleks. I'm not sure that's quite in the serial The Daleks from 63, but it's kind of an interesting idea uh, to retroactively perhaps insert into the show. And that's just kind of interesting in this era where we get uh, thornier bits of um, additive, retroactive conti- continuity into the show. Gig, what do you think? Well, uh, you know, that, that bit in Into the Dalek, which is kind of using the meta role of the original Dalek serial in turning the Doctor into slightly more of a heroic character and projecting that onto his actual character. It's one of those classic moth things, kind of fiddling about with the history of the show and working the material history into the show, into giving it its own meanings and stuff. That's all fun and great. And I, at the end of the day, People bring up the similarity with this line in Revolution, but to be honest, I I kind of don't really see it. This line in Revolution where she's like, I'm the one who stops the Daleks. What it reminds me the most of, it's like it's something you get in a fan film. Because it's just like a half-remembered clone of a line from elsewhere in the show. Except they've changed the word monsters to Daleks. And it's something that, it, if you're some sort of Doctor Who fan nerd freak, then it sounds like it, it hits some lizard brain part of you. And it sounds like it makes sense. But it does not actually make a lick of sense. It doesn't mean fucking anything, right? It's non-writing. It's that pure fan film kind of imitative anti-writing that's just completely devoid of substance. We're just just vaguely sloppily imitating cliches and stuff that we recognise. I think on one thing, it's like, we have the whole subplot set in Osaka, but we see no Japanese people. We have the Doctor and Jack escaping yep. the prison, but no one chases them. There are no guards. Mm-hmm. It's empty again. And this is a recurring thing in this era. You get these worlds where pe- there's just an utter emptiness. They didn't have the maybe the budget or the time or the effort to actually populate the worlds that they're depicting on screen. And it really just re-emphasizes that sense of everything just being so lazy and dilapidated and crap. It's funny because this was filmed before... Uh, you know, COVID-19 <laughs> yeah. effect on the television industry, which has got the curious thing where we have this character that I assume is a bit of a uh, Theresa May, like, um, parallel. It kind, it kind of, she seems that way, at least in terms of optics. And that's like, that doesn't just hit different now. It doesn't really hit at all. Like, that's ancient history. Yeah, they literally um, have her going secure, stable, stability. You know, it's it's an obvious <laughs> imitation of Teresa's strong and stable, uh, yeah. like catchphrase from how many elections ago was that? Fuck knows. Right, so it's just it's so out. I think it's genuinely cool they locked this special so early, which means they had this big, you know, fairly expensive looking special to release uh, during COVID nineteen's big effects mutation. Even in the UK, isn't that very darky? Uh, but the problem is, you insert political parallels into a story you film way before you're going to broadcast it you're playing with fire especially in england i mean at the end of the day like chibnall struggles to even be contemporaneous with the time so expecting him to be ahead of the times by like nine months it's just completely unrealistic (laughs) it's never going to happen just put enough more than you can chew and it'll be weird if robertson does become president in universe because that would mean in universe then there was effectively trump and then another trump um (laughs) which would be kind of (laughs) more bleak than real life really yeah um but it does seem like robertson is going to come back i was hoping he would be like inaugurated as the president of the daleks in this story like he would take power and he would basically be the new davros because that's a a role i think Mm, he would thrive in but instead he kind of just um convened with them and then and then went away oh uh, i love him if anything bridges this era um i'd be up for it being robertson i just love so outwardly dastardly villains and he's having so much fun with it i like fun 
I like I like evil characters. He's cool. I, I, like I love him. I love villains where you can just tell the actors just having the time of their life. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like even if it doesn't matter if the villain themselves like they can be absolutely deplorable. You know, and if they were real, you would hate their guts. But it's like that sort of thing. Like you can feel the energy. I massively stand his relationship with Joe as well. I loved like his, uh, like uh, his his. His lovely little nod to her when she like outplays him, just bringing up tax issues, and he's like, "Oh, well played." And he like yeah. seems genuinely pleased that she's outmaneuvering him. He happily calls her prime minister. I just stand this supportive relationship. I was, I was, I really oh liked God. it. That was really cool. <laughs> You'll be shipping them next. Yeah, well, why ahead of you? When they're talking about like, I want to expedite this project, and he says that six of the sweetest words in the English language. It's like <laughs> I have to agree. Chib really does feel at home with these kinds of scenes of, of Patterson and Robertson capitulating, um, not capitulating, um, collaborating. Um, it feels like this is his milieu, and it's like, why yeah, doesn't yeah. he embrace this? Make Doctor Who a bit more of a down-to-earth procedural. You know, you can still have the fun space stuff. It, it again with this era, it feels like he's sort of not really. He's looking down on Doctor Who as a genre. He's t- trying to make it into basically something equivalent to like a superhero film or something about a superhero who isn't even very interesting. Whereas like these scenes of um, convening between politicians, they actually pop a little bit, you know, yeah, yeah. just a little bit. Um, even despite the fact that they're yeah. just standing on concrete, often giving information that we don't need or have already heard. Um, it, I still yeah. enjoy them. But they're, they're having it, fun. Um. It fits in very well with the whole idea as well from Torchwood. One thing I've noticed with Chibnall's writing is that he seems to excel when it comes to very... This will sound weird given how badly the fam has been mishandled in his era, but he seems to excel when it comes to sort of human stories, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and Torchwood... Yeah, yeah. And and also like just in Torchwood... Uh, oh gosh, I've got the name of it now. You know the one with the island in the people adrift adrift um, that's the one um so that that was that was a huge highlight and it was because it was very very down to earth very human focused and and then and torchwood you notice very clearly any time he is dealing with something that has a sci-fi like sci-fi element in it he loses the plot a bit and it just it, it's it's weaker it's noticeably weaker so it didn't shock me at all um this this applies to Doctor Who as well. His previous episodes before he took over Showrunner, things like The Power of Three. Nobody remembers The Power of Three for the sci-fi plot. They remember it for the very, you know, the sort of initial bit with the like the TARDIS team acting like a wee family. Um, so it just so happens that I think, I, I, exactly as 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 was being said there, um, the the scenes with Robertson and. I keep forgetting it's Patterson. I don't know. They are. Um, yeah, Joe Patterson. Yeah. Yeah. The scenes with them, with them, and the scenes where it's just like, in a sense, they're just talking politics. They're talking something that is so down to earth and humany, even though they're ultimately discussing Daleks. You know, it it comes across as more real, more interesting, more engaging. Um, but then as soon as, of course, as soon as we bring in the actual, you know, alien stuff and all that, it just starts to fall apart, which is such a shame. So, yeah, I think if you went down the route of making it more procedural, making it um even more, in a sense, Earth-based, <laughs> you know, yeah. do you, I mean, like, 
I would be fine with that because there's a lot you can do with that and see, it clearly seems to be Chibnall's strong point. So. See, on that note of looking down on Doctor Who and Robertson and stuff, I mean, that that last jump cut where we go from the Doctor angrily confronting Robertson, like, you've got some explaining to do, <laughs> and then we just go literally in a flash straight to, okay, Robertson's fine and he's <laughs> moving up in the world, everything's great. The Doctor did, did fucking nothing. The Doctor literally just didn't, you know, just let him waltz off. It feels like it has to be intentional at this point yeah, like, yeah. surely how could I think you, so. you can't do that and not know that you are utterly undermining any sense of authority or ability to resist villainy or oppression that the doctor has like utterly just demolishing any sense of the doctor as having any power utterly impotent whereas you know robertson is just going up and up in the world like chibnall just seems to love all that stuff and just be- practically fucking hate the doctor at this stage i i don't know if he's thinking through how it frames the doctor but i I'm, without doubt, there was meant to be ironic and perhaps even funny. And then we get, you know, Ryan's human reaction of Graham's like, how can this be happening? And Ryan, the cynical old wise soul, is like, of course it's happening. Yeah, it's meant to be ironic. I, I don't think, I, I don't know what he thinks about how it positions the Doctor. The line, two hearts, one happy, one sad. <laughs> that line was um, interesting because as was noted by someone else, um, Deborah, if you're listening, um, that line was very strange to me because it came, I don't know it came across as like um she can care and not care at the same time I don't know rather than the idea because it's always been put forward that the two hearts means that she feels things more strongly instead it's more like she can multitask now she's good she's yeah, she can compartmentalize very paint by numbers version of emotion it's just reducing everything down to the most simplistic manner possible just bifurcating things and t- as an, a total lack of nuance I think is the is the the key here yeah. I want a Jekyll and Hyde story of the caring doctor and the uncaring doctor. Because you can try that. Yeah. I guess circling back to the Ryan Beanie scene, um, Astro, you brought up the power of three, and I think that that episode is very much like a sort of blueprint for this episode with the, the companions like growing distant from the doctor, drifting away from them, um, Amy and Rory then, and, and Ryan and Graham now. Um, and in that sense, it felt like Chibnall, you know, drawing from one of his only good or, or better Who scripts. Um, and I kind of think that, like, the idea that the Doctor herself represents change is a little bit, like, it's not very much a big part of new Doctor Who. Like, if anything, the Doctor is a person who can't accept change. You know, the whole I don't like endings riff. And um, hmm. this Doctor has never really had to face change before. Like, she's never had... Um, new companions come in or any significant shakeups to her life. So I, I can buy that this is her first real reckoning with it. Um, but yeah, I think I do agree that the problem is that she comes across as too like weakened and passive in the scene, because if you look at like the Riverside scene from the power of three, um, that episode is all about Amy and Rory sort of humoring the doctor and like sort of you, you, because they love him, they're pretending that they're like still fully invested in the travel and everything, and they can't bring themselves to break it to him that they're sort of growing closer to real life. Whereas in this episode, Ryan and Graham, they don't really, um, they don't even pretend. They're <laughs> just like from the moment the episode starts, they're not invested anymore, and it's just so boring to watch because they've already disengaged, and it's like so have I. And um, yeah, the the what you may call it the. And yeah, the Riverside scene in, in Power of Three, it's like the 11th Doctor is stating his whole worldview. It's like, he's not running away, he's running two things, he's, he's an adventurer, he seizes the day, all that, blah, blah, blah. Here it's just like the Doctor is 
despondent because she doesn't know everything about her life. And yeah, that's the, the baffling enigma of the timeless child children's story is that the way it's handled in this special, everything is only hinted and they don't bring anything up. And it's because Chibnall has written a story that is too confusing to actually include in the script, like any general <laughs> audience members watching this, if they had started talking about Tech Tayoon and whatever, they would have just not known what the hell was going on. And that's a problem because that's the story that Chibnall's trying to tell. It has to be something that you can put on screen without alienating people. Like, if you look at The, um, the Runaway Bride, Russell T. Davies doesn't shy away from the fact that Rose was the most important person in the Doctor's life. The whole special is built around building up to, you know, the name drop of Rose. And um, if this is what we're going to be caring about for the next series is the Doctor searching for her origins and all this, I don't know, alternate universe, legions of Doctor's shit, then maybe we should actually start, you know, introducing it into the stories rather than, you know, talking about it in euphemisms and like, oh, I don't know what's going on in my past. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's like he's afraid of his own story um and that doesn't bode well what occurs to me just listening to you talk about it now is that um like uh, that that essence of what's happened to the doctor and what she's so cut up about i mean and finding out that she's been memory wiped by the time lords i mean, that's that's trauma in a sense isn't it she's sort of found out this kind of traumatic knowledge about her origins shall we say and for ryan to be basically phrasing it like oh well you just need to get used to change like that's would you say that to someone who who had been traumatized or found out they had they'd lost memories or something horrible happening to them? Like, oh, it's just you know, changes something you all have to get used to. I think the way it comes off is that whereas say eleven in the power of three is perhaps emotionally immature, thirteen in this story it's like borderline infantilized. And, and you know, the fact that Ryan is now being like the parent parental figure to her and saying, well, you know, we have to get used to change. So just, you know, everything changes. And, and the doctor's just, you know, looking at the floor and, you know, mumbling to herself. Mm, yeah, mm, I guess so. Well, it's it's nice for Ryan not to be infantilized since that's been an all time yeah. theme of that character. True. Missy. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> do, do you have any other stray points about the special? First of all, I don't like, uh, I can't comment on this entirely because i haven't seen the vast majority of it but um just listening to something that gig said um the doctors discovered that her past isn't what she thought and she's lost memories and in a classic chib move of missing the incredibly obvious point of conversation surely jack's missing memories may have come up if it has if it like there's you know more Mm. to be said i can close my ears while you don't spoil tortured for me but yeah yeah, interesting. Well, to be fair, Russell T. Davies forgot that. Uh, I think Moffat forgot that. I'm not going to hold it against Chimnall for forgetting that bit of Jack Back's story, but good point. That could have been interesting. Um, even outside of the missing memories thing, just the fact that Jack is someone that the Doctor has known since Series 1, since just after the Time War, would have made him a good confidant with, you know, now that she's doubting herself, just having her talk to someone that she's known for ages, but it's entirely absent from the special. He just leaves without a word. That was weird. They must have cut a scene and not been able to film a scene in main photography or something. I refuse to believe Jack was meant to leave by a little voiceover thing about Gwen's son. Something went up there. So fucking hilarious. A little fanfare he just exits with. It's like, it's really, it's the ultimate combination, isn't it? Like, oh, Jack's back. Okay, we're going to just get rid of him in voiceover. Bye. Doctor won't even acknowledge it. No goodbye scene. Pathetic. Now that Jack's out of the bag, I wonder, I'm pretty sure Barrowman's back in his American home right now. And maybe with COVID-19 restrictions on filming, he won't be able to return for the eight episodes of Series 13. But I feel like he's not parked away in a way the show won't, or let alone can't use him again. He could perhaps return 
Uh, maybe a story a little bit more about... No, I'm not getting my hopes up. But I'm sure he could return. Uh, can we talk about the new introduction to the TARDIS now? Graham 2.0. <laughs> uh, so, what uh, What gets my goat? Um, I, 13 and Yaz, cool. I like this more than maybe you folks. Um, cool stuff you can do there. Uh, I'm not I'm not subtweeting, you know, the big thing you could do there. I I doubt the show is going to do any lesbian love story between them, although that could be interesting. Yeah. We've had a lot of Doctor Doctor love stories, but we haven't had one like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a cop being interested in, like, a cop-ish doctor. Interesting stuff. Anyway, <laughs> just Yaz is, you know, really interested in the doctor, and the doctor likes Yaz. Tea at Yaz's. Cool. Two friends... You know, the, a big problem with series 11 and 12 is do- having so many companions means we get these, like, scenes where they litanize, like, they all say the exact same thing in sequence, and it's, like, so grating. I don't think Chibnall had a great hold on the three companions and the Doctor. So, one companion, one Doctor, you know, the status quo for New Who, that sounded awesome to me. I think even Chibnall would be forced to characterize both those characters more when you sharpen it down to just those two. And a series with... Just the two female leads, that's cool. Doctor Who hasn't done that before. And that's, again, Chibnall's all about, you know, prog- uh, being progressive and diverse with the casting and everything. So I was really excited for that. I thought that would be a pretty cool way to do Series 13. Uh, and then after this special aired, oh, and we'd gotten photos, leaked photos of an episode Yaz and the 13th Doctor had with Sontarans in Series 13. So it was all happening. You know, I was totally believing wow, we really aren't getting a new companion. This is going to be the two women dream team. Cool. Something new. Um, something new. Something new. After this special ad that was a little teaser thing um, that was broadcast of John Bishop, who I hadn't heard of him before. My understanding is he's a famous and pretty well-loved English comedian. Yeah. Uh, he's joining the TARDIS. So he's another what, guy in his 50s, comedian. Um, I... So I'm certainly not saying he's a bad guy. His comedy is my thing. I YouTubed a few clips. Um, getting somewhat famous people in the show is cool. It can bring in new viewers and add a new element to the show. Add a new element to the show. How do you see John Bishop adding a new element to the show? I don't. I mean, we don't know what his character is going to be like beyond his name is Dan. But what do you think of this casting, folks? I mean, it's the lowest common denominator, isn't it? I mean, it's just the easiest possible, safest route. Okay, we got rid of our one mature white man. Let's get another one in. We need a bloke to, you know, all spice up the... Oh, my fucking God. It's just... I'm inarticulate with my contempt towards his decision. Uh, I'd like to second that. You know, I wasn't fully sold on the idea of, of 13 and Yaz just on their own. Not for any reason other than the fact that Yaz hadn't really had a chance to have a character yet. Um, but well, we got some glimpses of it, you know, those, um, what was The shove. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, but what was the episode before with the... Oh, no, I forgot Timeless it, but... Children, where she yeets herself into the portal <laughs> no, to save her wife? No, 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 no. Do you mean Haunting of the Dati? No. My person's a bit different, that one. No, the one with the the mental health issues one. Oh, can you hear can me? Can you hear me? That's the one. Sorry, I mine's blank. Um, I I liked her in that. I liked you know we got glimpses of what Yaz's potential could have been, but I just hadn't been sold yet. And because Yaz 
certainly up until Revolution had very much come across as as just blindly following the Doctor, no you know, no questioning, no conflict, nothing there. And then in in Revolution we get this this glimpse of, you know, she has she has feelings other than, you know, just going the doctor's great, you know? And I thought that was that was good. Even if even if her sort of frustration was was um brought about by the fact that she wanted to travel with the doctor more, it still felt real in it. Um so when when I was watching Revolution, um I was like, Do you know what? That could have been really good. At, at this point I knew the mm. John Bishop thing, because um, I I'd been a bit late watching the episode. But I was like, that could have been really good. I was I was genuinely quite invested in Thirteen and Yaz by by the end of Revolution. For some reason that episode sold me more on them as a duo than I'd ever been sold before. So I was sitting there like you know, I would really like to see this. I would like to see Yaz finally get a chance to to shine and not, you know, not to be stuck in the middle of a TARDIS team that that Chibno doesn't know how to balance. So, um, so the fact that I was watching this and, and I was so excited about this idea, then I remember, oh no, they're bringing in a new companion, and and as it stands, the reason I said Graham two point is just because, um. I can't imagine that there is that he's gonna fulfil a wildly different, you know, sort of uh character compared to Graham. I don't want to get too presumptuous. I don't wanna be the guy yeah. who like says, Well, he's a he's a British comedian in at around that age, therefore he's gonna be exactly like Wilf Brian Graham. I don't wanna do that because like while it's very possibly true, yeah. I like taking things as they come and I don't wanna I don't want to get this image of how he's going to be in my head. So yeah. when he appears, I'll project that onto him and, you know, form my opinions around that. I don't want to do that. Um, so I'm not feeling that so much now. But what I really feel is like, I feel pretty embarrassed. The past few yeah. weeks, I've been saying stuff like, Astazis be feeding, you know, <laughs> I've had such joy. <laughs> the dream team of a 13 and yes series. And Chibnall just knocked me down. He's, he's yeah. laughing at me for doing I've- that. I felt also it's like, um, so I'm 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 not negative about John Bishop joining. I'm not you know I don't have any um, sort of bad feelings about it because I don't really have any opinions on him as an individual. Yeah. Um, and even if worst came to worst and he did fulfil the Graham role, I thought Graham was quite amusing. I thought you know I fairly enjoyed Graham, even if he was like a, he wasn't necessarily like a. a an ambitious, you know, sort of character role. Um, I still thought he was he was fun. Um, I just think it'd be a shame if he ended up being being Graham all over again. But you have to assume that that if John Bishop is being brought in and he theoretically could very easily just be Graham two point you have to assume that Chibnall, for some reason, you know, is going to subvert that. You know, maybe he won't, maybe he will. But but why would he just go and? bring in the exact same thing you've already had you know i had this i had a couple of seconds of hope for john bishop's character i mean i'm like i said i'm totally blank i have no you know whatever uh but in this little teaser we had over me was like putting stuff into a van i saw a van and like he looked like a middle-aged guy and so my mind jumped to is he a guitarist is he a musician is he putting like music stuff in the van (laughs) no wow a a musician companion that could that could could be so cool couldn't it imagine imagine like an episode of uh, the Doctor bringing him back to the Beatles, but the Beatles are space Beatles for some reason, and they have to revert them back to humans, and then he plays with them at the end or something. <laughs> like, musician companion, so many cool things. 
And then I saw it was a bucket and then he opened up the thing yeah. and it was full of like cleaning stuff. And I'm, All right, there's my seconds of hope. Uh, I'm not getting up on my, my little soapbox, but all I'm saying is a com- uh, musical companion done before, very good, loved it. Um, but yeah, um, I think he's just like, it, no, it feels wrong to speculate based on such little we've seen. But I think what he's being set up right now is just like handyman, like middle-aged British guy, you know. Uh, but but like I said, presumably there must be something different there, you know, and there must be something that that differentiates him from Graham because I cannot imagine Chibnall, even with some of his questionable decisions, would genuinely just sit down and write what we've already been having for the past few years so um but yeah it's so disappointing to me that we lost out on like 13 and Yaz because that is a dynamic that I would have liked to see more of and Revolution convinced me of that finally that um that it would have been good um so the fact that the at the last moment I finally see the light <laughs> Chibnall snatches it away from me is just ugh, you can write it it's hilarious. I wish it was Leo, frankly, because yeah. I, I really yeah, liked that actor's good. performance. Yeah, he was he was good. Good. And, um, you know, it would have been a different sort of character, someone who does something really bad in their first story and they sort of have to make up for that, um, you know, develop more of a conscience. So that would have been good, but, you know, that's not the world we're living in. Instead, we have Dan, Dan with the van. <laughs> so, you know, I'll just sit back and take it, basically. Dan the man with the van. Uh, and to finish off, I I would just like to ask everyone, when do you think Series 13 will come out? Missy, when do you think? Uh, okay. November 13th. November. November. November 13th. 13th. Screenshot this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Astra, when do you think? Uh, I would also put it around that time. Um, I'm very bad at estimating these things, though, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was around November, maybe, or, you know, certainly in the latter end of the year. Gig, are you a November guy? Uh, no, I'll be radical and say late October. <laughs> Tom? Uh, I think it'll come when we need it the most, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that's December. I'll be a Decemberist, which is wildly pessimistic, but, you know, no one else has said it, so I'll say it. John Bishop has COVID. Uh, oh. And Chibnall, in his thing to Doctor Who magazine, was super cautious. He kept saying, I'm going to probably get it out in 2021, but look, something could happen. Uh, so I'm going to be the big pessimist and say we're not going to get it uh, this year. We're going to get it early the next year. I think it's quite rude that you you, you made us put our thoughts before <laughs> revealing that. That's yeah. a dick move. <laughs> Wow. Well, he might just sit out. He might sit out a few episodes. They can do the thing of you know how classic who would like park Nissa away for Kinder. <laughs> Maybe he's just gonna we're gonna get the Thazzy Dream Team in like two or three episodes while he recovers from COVID. That's yeah, I'm sticking to that. That's a written pillar of hope. That's a written very cliche. That's a written pillar of hope. That's a written very cliche. But I still found that that story was fairly damn boring. That's all this year is. You don't even have to watch it in order. That's a written very cliche. 